You might be wondering why my children are here tonight, this Wednesday night, October 31st. It's like when homeschoolers are out with children in the middle of the day and people think, what are those children doing not in their cage, I mean in their schools? And uh, the homeschool mom says, we're learning math (laughs) at the market or whatever. Um, Well, my kids are learning not to participate in the uh, unfruitful deeds of darkness (laughs) tonight uh, because they really don't have anything to do with the celebration or glorification of death. Death is the enemy, and um, I've got that on good authority because in the scriptures at the end of uh, the the judgment uh, phase of all of the human race, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. So we're going to stay the hell out of there. I mean, we're going to stay out of that hell, if you will. And um, so uh, I just wanted to open tonight with a, it is for the world around you, time for orange and, and red, we're, or orange and black. We're celebrating red tonight because this is the color that was most associated with the Protestant Reformation. Red is kind of like if you're going to wave a flag for the Reformation, it's a red flag. So um, that's just, that was, I think it has to do with the blood of Christ. I'm not sure, but um, I'm much more red on October 31st than orange, and I'll tell you why. I love the color orange. Love the color orange, but um, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I don't really have anything that the Druids can offer me. <laughs> I really have nothing to help me with. And I have a little bit of uh, insight with you uh, for, on your culture. Now, I don't know if you remember, uh, some of you remember, others had it on reruns, but there was once a show called Bewitched. Very benign. I mean, Disney had bed knobs and broomsticks. We were playing witches. It was fun. You do a little twinkle of your, of, you know, Samantha would twinkle her, her cheek, and then all of a sudden th- stuff would happen, and the scariest thing that you could ever imagine would just be Agnes Moorhead. <laughs> yeah, I watched it, and, and, uh, but I wasn't really a bewitched person. I was more of an Eastern flavor. I liked Jeannie. I liked I Dream of Jeannie. If you had to pick one of the two, I was definitely more Barbara Eden-oriented than Elizabeth Montgomery-oriented. It's just how I was. It's, it's a personal preference. It's just how I, was, uh, de- how I came about, but I don't really have anything to do with, with, uh, with Zoroastrian demons either, Zen and genies. I don't want anything <laughs> particularly to do with that. Oh, but pastor, this is all just fun. And I know it used to be in a, in a worldview that we used to embrace here where we kind of had our, not lost our minds, where we knew what a man and a woman were, for example. And nobody thought that was controversial to say there is just a, either a man or a woman. It can't be fluid. It's just one or the other, except for somebody that's born as a hermaphrodite intersex person on the less than 1%, you know, fringe. But, I mean, we're either male or female by the way God made us. I mean, back before we'd lost our minds, we could play little games, and it seemed all fun and benign. In the 1990s, I believe, or early 2000s, there was a teeny bopper show called Sabrina. Oh, yeah, oh, Lord, yes, I'm testify. Okay. Sabrina, <clears throat> uh, I believe the girl's name was Elizabeth, something, Elizabeth Joan Hart or something. The little girl played this character. Melissa, Melissa, jo- Melissa Joan Hart, thank you. Got her middle name, Mr. First Name. Well, this person uh, was on this show, and she was a teenage witch. And I remember um, flipping through the channels on my way to Drew Carey or whatever back in those days when I didn't know what time was for. Um, I, uh, I heard them say things like the powers that be on the show. So they have to have some sort of reference to what they're doing. There has to be some sort of reference. I've watched the Harry Potter thing with witchcraft really closely. They don't get into the re- religious overtones of witchcraft in that fantasy world at all. It's not religious at all. But you had to get religious if you're going to spend any long-term uh, 
engagement with this. And it's not some sort of quest to fight the bad guy. So what happened with uh, Sabrina the Witch was, uh, I guess it had a long run, and then it, was, it ran its course. And like all these stupid things that have a laugh track to tell you when it's funny, it went off the air. And they've rebooted it. And I only know about this because I read the, the news reels, the news rolls, where they roll up the news headlines. In the national news right now, the Temple of Satan, a religious institution made of mostly geeks and dorks, who do believe in worshiping Satan, but they don't believe he's a personal being, and yet they think that their, their, their sculptures and statues put in public places should be allowed. The Temple of Satan is suing Netflix. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Netflix, but it's, an, um, it's this live stream or video streaming uh, uh, resource for people to watch TV shows and movies and so forth. And, um, and if, you're, if you're really old school, you can also get uh, CDs and DVDs in the mail. But Netflix, this massive movie-producing studio organization, is now being sued by the Temple of Satan. Does anybody know why? Because they have rebooted Sabrina the Teenage Witch as a TV show. And to have it compelling to get to your, to, to, to your teenager now, you have to introduce a villain and a conflict and of course, they went with the villain in conflict that goes directly with witchcraft. Satan is after Sabrina, apparently. And they have taken, Netflix took without permission, the sculpture that the Temple of Satan did of Satan called the Baphomet sculpture. It's a, a, a picture of Satan personified as a, as a goat. They have taken the Baphomet sculpture and stolen it as uh, this intellectual artistic property to make the character the enemy for Sabrina the Teenage Witch. So that now... To tell the story of witchcraft for a compelling youth, to compel the youth and really get them because everything's got to be so dark and awful, you actually bring it back to the truth about witchcraft. That it really is demonic, that we really are, they really are serving God's enemy. And what's interesting above all in this to me is that when you talk to someone that's into Wicca, they'll say, oh, this is before Satan and God and all that. This is older than that. And what they mean is, that the Druids were dancing around in the forest before the missionaries showed up. But if you keep going farther back before the missionaries and the Druids, you end up in Babylon and the original alternative to the Creator who loves you and made you for Himself. And so I, at some point, we're just going to have to pull the ripcord on this thing and get out of this. I just have nothing to do with the occult. I don't, I don't think anybody... In, we have people in our midst that are suffering oppression from demonic forces because they have dabbled in this. And you probably don't know who they are. Don't start. It's not, it's not a witch hunt. <laughs> but but don't, you don't need ever, you, you never need demons to tell you any information. You don't want a demon to tell you what is going to happen based on your stars in the newspaper today. Do not ever, don't ever read your horoscope. It's not yours, it's Satan's. There's nothing that the demons have to tell you that you need to know. In fact, in the Bible, when the demon-possessed girl comes behind Paul, as, as Ryan shared, the, the girl with the python, with the, with the foretelling demon, the, this puthon is what it says in, in Greek, this, this oracle girl, when she says, these are men proclaiming Christ, the son of the living God, or however she says it, she says the true statement, Paul says, that's it, out, and cast the demon out of her. We don't want any information from the demons, including true things. It's an illicit source. So Ouija boards, out. <clears throat> Seances, crystal balls, 
you name it, if it's, if it's a source of information where you can, and people have done all kinds of things. The Greek grandmothers will read your tea leaves. Ever heard of that? Or read your coffee grounds. Or, or you go into more animistic cultures and we're reading the entrails of chickens or we're throwing bones down and seeing what the bones tell us. And then there's, of course, tarot cards. You know how Halloween got mainstreamed in the United States? How it became a holiday? It wasn't because of the, the severe Catholic influence so much as the Scots-Irish that brought it with them from their culture and the immigration in the early 1900s. Late 1800s, early 1900s, the Scots-Irish. Now there is, with that, a Catholic influence. You have All Saints Day where the Pope baptized Samhain, the, the demonic ritual of the Druids, and said we're going to celebrate as a Christian ritual now and celebrate all the saints, whoever's left, Christopher, everybody, we're going to have All Saints Day and then we have All Saints Eve. Before anybody ever said that, the Druids were saying this is the point, this is the high holy day when the spirits are able to cross over. And it's this pagan view of ancestor worship, and, uh, and it really just goes to paganism and demonism. And so <clears throat> um, the way it got popularized was the place where the Druids had been big and, and celebrated this, this festival called Samhain, spelled Samhain, but it's Samhain. That's where Halloween came from. And, uh, and the, the, the Scots-Irish brought it with them, and they're the ones that were carving turnips and stuff and making making lanterns, and Stingy Jack became the, the guy that Satan didn't let into hell, so he had to drift around the earth with a carved turnip as a, as a, as a, um, a lantern, so that's your jack-o'-lantern. And all this stuff that we've, we've got is just, at best, wives' tales and, and fairy tales and myths. And, um, and you know what's amazing about this? The little kids have no idea. They have no idea what they're doing or what, what this celebration is. And they will never know, and they never need to. I was raised uh, in a popular, a very Christian committed home, but in a very popular culture. Went to Halloween, went, went out as Teen Wolf and, and all that, and had a good time. It was fun, fun, fun. But here's the interesting thing. Why is this attractive? That's my biggest question from my own experience. Why is the darkness attractive? Why is the, the Halloween movie selling out? What is it about darkness and the celebration of death that we find so compelling and we want it, and we want to get that, and we want to have the bats and the rot and the walking dead and all. Why is that attractive? And the, and the answer, only answer I can come up with is it's not from Jesus, and it's there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with us that we're attracted to that. So I say, based on Ephesians 5 and the, the seeking the, the light, walking in the light as he's in the light in First John, I'm just going to just dispense with all of that, and that's why we're here. And you all could have probably said, everyone here tonight, that, by the way, if you're watching online, we are overstuffed tonight, We're crowded. People heard there was going to be trick-or-treating, so the, the, the church really, no, it's, uh, but, um, but you probably all could have said the same message that I'm, I'm introducing tonight with as we uh, look into Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 8. Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 8 on uh, the Great Commission as we study being on mission. <clears throat> Um, if, uh, if you ever have occasion, by the way, to tell someone why you don't do the trick-or-treat thing, your kids aren't participating in this special holiday, this high holy day for pagans and druids, um, I, would, um, I would challenge you not to be over the top about polar, polar, polarizing language. It's a choice that you make for yourself, how you observe the day, says Paul. And so if you want to set this day apart to the Lord like every day, that's the argument. I, this is just, I, I don't have time 
to get involved in that. I think it's, uh, I think it's on balance a bad thing. I know that the kids don't know where it comes from, but I, we just don't want to participate with it. That's a sufficient answer. We don't have to become fire-breathing um, uh, witch hunters or something. Uh, and, and, but the kids, I think our children do need to understand uh, that there's a reason why churches across the fruited plain that are otherwise Bible-believing are canceled tonight because the kids have to go out and get candy. There's a reason why that's happened. And um, <clears throat> um, not for me. Not, not for me in my house. So we're at Luke, Luke and the Great Commission in uh, this episode of the study of On Mission number 13, October 31st, and we're on mission number 13. You know, God invented the number 13. We'll be okay. All right. We looked at this a little bit last week by going through every verse of Luke chapter uh, 24, the last chapter of Luke. We went through the whole thing, and um, you're, you're still have singed eyebrows from that experience, how fast we went through, and it was just... It was so much content because that's what Luke 24 does. But just by way of review, the big picture was that the revelation that they had received of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he told them, I'm going to be resurrected after being crucified and I'll meet you in Galilee. That message was what they were told again. And, and the point was when God gives you something uh, that he tells you in his revelation, he wants you to know it and then he wants you to live it. He wants you to, to put it into practice. And that's the sad story of all the missed cues on Resurrection Sunday as described in Luke chapter 24. But I want to focus in on where the, um, the writer Luke, writing under the auspices, the apostolic aegis of the Apostle Paul, gives the Lord's mission statements. Luke does it in Luke 24 and Acts 1. Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. And I wonder if as we open up tonight, if you can... Watch closely to see what is Luke's focus on the Great Commission. What is his topical focus? Because it's going to be uh, thrilling when you think about how God chose to reveal his, his program. The hint is what's going on with us today. Luke 24, beginning with verse 44. Now he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, something we pray for, for God to open our hearts to understand what he would give us on his timing, on his terms. Verse 46, and he, Jesus, said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Luke uh, 24 verse 44 through 49. Now let's pull up verse 46 and look at it in some detail. Luke 24, 46 gives us the work of the gospel. The work of the gospel. And when I say it that way, what is the work of the gospel? It is the death 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the work of the gospel. That's the way he died for our sins and rose to give us eternal life. That's the work. The work of the gospel is not what I do with that. It's what Jesus Christ has already done. And so let's look at it. He said to them, Thus it was written and thus it was necessary that the Christ suffer and rise up from the dead on the third day. I want to point out some observations from each one of these lines. And he said to them, I've got an observation for you about the Great Commission. When you think about what is this verse saying about our mission? Well, the work of the gospel begins with, he said to them, this is Jesus Christ's as the commissioner. It's his word. This isn't from Luke. This isn't from Paul supervising Luke. This is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, Paul supervises Luke to write it as the Holy Spirit inspires Luke's words. See, we're Christians. It comes from Jesus. The apostles are apostles or sent ones of Christ. And so we always want to keep that in focus. And he said that what, everything that follows. And so this is an observation for our purposes tonight. Just recall, when we talk about the Great Commission, it's Jesus Christ saying, this is how it is. And that, the reason I say that is because anybody else who comes at you and says, well, that's not for us, or oh, you can do something else with your time, or they don't rank with Christ. In the army, we used to have a fun game we would play where two people would have a disagreement, but they would be of different ranks. And what do the person of the higher rank do? He would say, okay, let's play. Let's hide the rank. And then who gets to decide? They would play. It's an arrogant, silly thing that... that Smart alecks are in every field, but, um, but they would hide your rank and say, okay, you want to go X and I want to do Y. Let's see, one, two, three, show. I guess we're doing Y. And they would do that. Well, that's how it is. When someone tells you you don't obey Jesus Christ, you say, um, Jesus outranks you. And he's my King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm going to obey him. And, um, and he, Jesus Christ is not going to fault you for that. Now, don't let someone co-opt Jesus and take his words out of context and then say you're doing something that he doesn't say. But if we pay close attention to the word, and that's part of why the study of on mission, we'll see that he very clearly has a mission for us as described by the Great Commission. Thus it was written, this work of the gospel was prophesied throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And the way we relate to the Old Testament, we look at the New Testament, is we don't say, oh, we misread it, and we read New Testament revelation back into the Old Testament and reinterpret it. That's not how you handle the Old Testament. It undoes your verification and validation of the Christ. No, we read the Old Testament as given, as intended by the authors who are prophesying of Christ. And then when he's born of a virgin, voila, born of a virgin, just like Isaiah 7. When he's born in Bethlehem, voila, Micah 5, 2, he's born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. When he is the son of David who's going to sit on the throne forever, behold, a son is given to us and a child is born to us in Isaiah 9. So when, when he's born and both his mother, genetic mother, and his stepfather are in the line of David, as revealed in Matthew and Luke in the genealogies, we say, ah, just like 2 Samuel chapter 7, he will be an, an heir, a son of David. See, what we're saying is that the Old Testament says what it means, and it didn't change when Jesus showed up. The New Testament is built directly on the edifice of the Old Testament revelation. 
And the Abrahamic covenant is my favorite one to point out in Genesis chapter 12 when God made his three promises to Abraham, his threefold promise, land, seed, and blessing. The, the, the seed and, uh, is the people and the land is the land and the blessing is the salvation that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ who would be born through that seed, through those people. And especially the seed promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, so the work of the gospel was prophesied, and it's all through the Old Testament. Just read Isaiah 53. Just read Genesis or uh, Psalm 22. The work was prophesied, but thus it was necessary. The work was also necessary. And I do not believe this means that, well, God said he would do it, so it's necessary for him to do it. I think this means that because of God's perfect righteousness, which must condemn and judge sin, and because of God's infinite love, which wants to save us, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. He had to bear our sins in his own body on the cross. That's what he's talking about when he says it was necessary that the Christ suffer. So the work of the, of the gospel was the death of Christ for our sins, and the work concluded with the resurrection, he, and to, that he must suffer and that he must rise up from the dead on the third day. So this is an observation of the work of the gospel in, in, in the way Luke introduces the Great Commission, the way he uh, uh, writes the things that Jesus talked about right before his ascension. Now, I want to say uh, briefly, if you go look at all the end of the gospel, end, end of all the gospels, the way Matthew 28 concludes, the way Luke 24 concludes, the way uh, Mark 16 and the long end he concludes, they all say different things. And so some will say, well, see, it's not, it's not right because they've got different, different messages, different words. Well, that's foolish because what the authors are doing without any apology is they're including the portion that they want to include for the purpose of their presentation. A gospel is not a recording. A gospel is a presentation with an argument behind it. It's presenting something through the story for you to grasp. And this, this presentation is about the focus in Luke's writing for the church on how the Great Commission will be powered. The power of the Great Commission. But let's don't get ahead of ourselves. In verse 47, we don't have the work of the gospel. We have our work, which is the proclamation of the gospel. Our mission is the proclamation of the gospel. See, the hard work's been done. We're just, we're just skipping across the meadows saying Jesus died for our sins. Hallelujah, the work's done. It's finished. Jesus died for us. And he rose from the dead. He's risen. And that's the gospel proclamation that he's going to get to in this commission. Verse 47 that it be proclaimed on the basis of his name, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now put this in the original order of the Greek, this is my translation. But it, that to be proclaimed, is repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now if you have a Bible that says repentance unto the forgiveness of sins, I'm going to say that's a hair we don't really need to split, but it does go back to transmission uh, of, of manuscripts. Somebody miscopied something. Either, either there was supposed to be a chi or there was supposed to be an ace. And I think there's, there's supposed to be a Kai. And Metzger thinks there's supposed to be an ace. And he may have believed in Christ before he died, I don't know. But the point is, um, it, it, it isn't very important for the meaning of the, the verse in this case. But I take, if you've got a King James or a New King James, this is what that one says, repentance and forgiveness of sins. The other uh, New American Standard, other translations will say repentance unto or for the forgiveness of sins. And on that, I would say this. It's very important to grasp this. Repentance is not about feeling sorry for your sins. It's not, it's not what it means. I know a scholar and a, and a, and a, a deceased scholar who has an acolyte who's a scholar who says, no, repentance just means feeling sorry. 
But I don't believe they're right. I think repentance is, a, is a more about the way you think than about the way you feel. And repentance is, you could visualize it as a turning if you want. It could, you could use the word imagery of a, of a turning. But it's not that I just turn away and renounce all my sins and I march right away from my sins. You don't. Nobody does. Because you're still stuck in your self-righteousness if you think you have. We're going to be struggling with sin. What we do is say, I can't, and he can, and that's a change of mind. So I'm turning from anything, including my own self-sufficiency, to deal with my sin. And I'm turning to Christ. He alone is my Savior. And that's repentance or saving faith. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. The word is metanoeo. Meta is the idea of change, metamorphosis, and noeo is the idea of the mind or the thinking. And so the way you're changing your thinking when you hear the gospel is you're saying, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. And by doing so, I'm turning from anything. I am rejecting any other alternative, including I showed up with my tools to help Jesus out with my salvation. That needs to be repented of. The idea of my ability to handle my sins or to reject them even. Now I'm saying, like, I'm just going to put my sins away and once that's handled, I'll believe in Jesus. You'll never believe in Jesus. The only thing you can do about your sin is nothing, is believe in Jesus that he paid for your sins. That's what we're saying in terms of the gospel, that that's the work of the gospel. Jesus did it. And that's the secret that people struggle and they're weighed down with their sin. Burdens are lifted at Calvary, okay? Jesus died for your sins. Believe in him. Trust him. And if you read Romans 6, you'll find that the moment you believe in Christ, you are operationally, functionally, positionally freed from the power of the sin nature in your life. You do not have to submit to it. It doesn't die, but you have died in Christ to it. You still have temptation. You still have the struggle with the sin nature, but you don't have to obey it. You have a new master. You have a new Lord, and you need to submit to him. That's a little summary of Romans 6, which we'll get to on Sunday. That the gospel, the repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed on the basis of Jesus' name unto all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Beginning from Jerusalem. So the first thing I want to say about this is the gospel commission is communication. That it be proclaimed. That's what he's telling them they need to do, isn't it? Isn't that obvious? The commission is the proclamation. Now let's, let's pull out of Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them. See, that's not proclamation. It is. Baptism is a proclamation. That baptized uh, candidate, per, being baptized, is saying, I believe in Jesus. I have died with Christ and I'm risen with Christ and have new life and I have the Holy Spirit in me. I'm baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. And the water signifies all of this. So yes, it's a proclamation. But before you did that, you told the person about Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you didn't baptize them because nobody in the Bible is ever baptized until they're a believer. And then you, then you baptize them because they are a believer and they're making that proclamation. So, no, the Great Commission is all about communication. It's all about what we say. Now, how are we saying it? How do you communicate? What are the various means of communication? Am I communicating right now besides what I'm saying? Is what I'm doing physically communicating? It is. I told you Reformation Day, October 31st, the color is red because of the Reformation, red for the Reformation. Am I wearing a red tie? That was intentional. I planned it out years ago. Check me out if I don't wear a red tie on October 31st. It's because it, when you go back to when I wasn't, it's because I didn't know that yet. <laughs> it's the Reformation. All right, I'm walking around. Why am I walking up, up to you? What, what am I communicating by walking up close to you? 
besides that I have no regard for Joel and his need to maneuver that camera. Okay, he's got it. What am I doing as I walk up here? I'm communicating intimacy as a friend, closeness, concern, not overbearing. I'm not bearing down on you. It's funny, I come down and then, wow, that's, that's dangerous. He's, a, he's loose. And uh, he doesn't have to be in that pulpit. I, well, I'm communicating all those things. What about this? What, what the silly get up? What am I doing with, uh, you know, pretty soon wearing a coat and tie is going to be like wearing a doublet in like, like the 1930s. You know, it's going to be so passe. I say the coat and tie go away when the president and the banker and the lawyer and, and all the people doing the important thing stop wearing coat and tie. When it stops being the way we communicate gravity of what we're doing, when we're not doing uh, communicating importance by how we present ourselves, I'll stop wearing it. But I, so far, I haven't seen uh, a single president ever without a coat and tie on unless it was some sort of photo op with you know, Reagan or, or Bush clearing brush up in their ranches or something with cowboy hats. But, but guess what? That same day, you saw a press conference with a suit and tie on because they're saying what we're, doing, what we're doing is important. What I'm trying to communicate, don't get distracted by the illustration. The point is that communication happens in many, many, many ways. Many ways. If you've got a Jesus bumper sticker, watch how you drive. You might be communicating a message you don't intend to send. If you're a careless driver, you're like, well, they won't know. Oh, yeah, they know that uh, <laughs> you really need a savior, you know. So the gospel is communication, and we've got to be careful about not just our words. That's where it starts, but it's the whole person. It's the whole thing. It's everything we do and ends up being communication. We were talking about the building. Oh, what a great illustration. What does our building say to the world? It's interesting the way things are interpreted. But what we want to to say to the world is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what we want to say. With our building, how do you say that with a building? Well, um, you provide it so that people can come in out of the rain and be warmed when they come in, okay? Um, You... um, God, who is that? Is he the God of blobs and disorder and total mess, or is he the God of order and design who has a sense of beauty and, and aesthetics? Which, which one of those is? So then you've got your whole argument throughout church history for Christian architecture, right? And I'm not saying we have to become shakers and worship our work and say, God is pleased with me because I have perfect symmetry in all my workings. The, the shakers is an interesting New England footnote in Christian history, but um, that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about being reflective of the God we serve with everything we do. So the building, okay? I think this building is a testimony to Jesus Christ for 200 years because, and to, to God's work in our nation for 200 years. I think that's what 200-year-old little churches with a still regular attendance still say. So there's, there's a value there you can't replace. You can't put a value on it. That's why we have the Building Renovation Committee. And so we are, as a committee, enjoining your prayers. And we just prayed in the prayer meeting for God's provision to do what is necessary for this communication of his grace, of his glory, of his goodness. On the basis of his name, Jesus is the commissioner, isn't he? On the basis of his name, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're coming in the name of Jesus to the world, offering eternal life and a relationship with God the Father through him. Now, I would not be equipping you to do this if I didn't remind you that there is in every conversation you have about Jesus Christ the message that you're not saying, but you are communicating. And what is that message? What am I communicating about my relationship with God 
that I'm not saying with my mouth? That's a really important question. It needs to be, I have a father who loves me and I want you to know him because through him, I can actually say, I love you too. That's the context. It's a love envelope. I have a father who loves me, not a father that I don't pay attention to, not a father that I disregard, not a father whose word is irrelevant to me or to my life, but a father that I'm very intimately acquainted with, that I know very well and I'm seeking to serve even though I know I'm not perfect, but a father who loves me with an infinite love and I'm offering that love, that relationship that I enjoy to you, and the way you get it is through his beloved son. See, that's the context for this message. If we don't have the context, then we're going to be saying things that we don't need to be saying without even using words. Okay, and so do you have that relationship? That's the challenge in terms of this gospel mission. But let's, let's work through the passage. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. This message of the proclamation of the gospel calls for man's response to God's work. It's man's response to God's work. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that the Holy Spirit believes for you. It doesn't say that. In fact, it puts the judgment of man on the basis of whether or not man believes in Christ. I absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God in the classic sense of divine, omnipotent sovereignty. And I absolutely believe that God holds us accountable and he's righteous for doing so when we don't believe in Jesus Christ. But I do not believe that Calvin or, or, or Arminius had a system that could sort these things out. I don't think Augustine had it. I know Pelagius didn't have it. I don't think any theologians have been able to reconcile absolute infinite sovereignty with human responsibility. But I do believe this. We have an infinitely sovereign and righteous and loving God who is not willing that any should perish. That's separation in eternity. But that all would come to repentance as believe in Christ. That's 2 Peter 3. I believe absolutely we have a sovereign God who doesn't want anyone to go to the lake of fire, who will in righteousness and justice send most human beings to the lake of fire. And I, re- and I, I don't know what to do about that except what the Bible says. The Bible says in John three eighteen, the judgment is whether they believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So man's response is really for man to do. I don't think man can do it without God's enablement. I don't think man is able to uh, even understand the gospel unless the Holy Spirit convicts him of sin and righteousness and judgment. But the Holy Spirit does do that, and the call is going out through the gospel. And so we don't need to play this game of, well, maybe you're elect, so maybe I'll share the gospel. You don't ever tell anyone you might be someone Jesus died for. Jesus died for the sins of the world, and you tell them Jesus died for you. And God is offering eternal life through his son. It's a legitimate offer. It is a real offer. It's not a conditional, contingent, we don't know what God's sovereignty is doing, our our offer. But see, where I think theologians go wrong, and I'm studying this a lot, is we overstep what we can reason because it seems to make logical sense to us. We don't have the reasoning ability to square infinite sovereignty with human responsibility. And so I don't think there's a contradiction. I just don't think I'm God. And, and so that I could understand fully how this, these things coincide. Now, I know people, I used to be the kind of person that would hear that and would say, oh, I know how it works. I mean, you don't know. I know how it works. God knew who would believe in eternity past, and he picked those people that would believe. But that's Arminius. I don't think Arminius was right about most of his concerns. And he was certainly wrong about whether you could lose eternal life. And those that followed him were wronger than him. 
they were more confused or more in error. So um, let's leave the theologians aside and let the scripture speak. This message of repentance and forgiveness of sins is what the human needs. He needs forgiveness, and the way he gets it is believing in Christ as a Savior. That's what needs to happen. The one produces the other. You don't get forgiveness of sins without believing in Christ, without this change of mind about who and what Jesus is and has done. The mission has a global destination unto all the nations. That's starting to sound kind of like what we're dealing with today, isn't it? Like it's not a national thing in Jerusalem or in Texas. It's not a national issue now. It's international. It's all the nations. But it had a starting point. This mission starting point is in Jerusalem. All these things we've observed. Now in verse 48, now we have witnesses. Now you are witnesses of these things. That was the shortest verse to translate. Now you are witnesses of these things. The statement of the commission to be that these men are witnesses of this is to the 11 for sure. But if you read in the passage and to all those that were with them, there's a room full of people and it's not just the, the guys left after Judas betrayed Christ. The 11 plus the others that were there with him in the upper room when Jesus appeared to them seemingly out of nowhere. And that's verse 33. You are witnesses of these things. The reason I bring this up is sometimes it has been suggested that the Great Commission is for the apostles. It's not for us. We're not the apostles. It's only for the apostles. And that's a problem with uh, verse 48 and verse 43. He's talking to everyone in the room. But I would say it's apostolic. And those apostles are specially chartered with a special authority and responsibility. And we're under the apostles. I believe in being apostolic. That's why we have the New Testament. We're a New Testament believing church. We're apostolic. That's what, that's what the New Testament is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ through the apostles and the power of the Spirit and their associates, the prophets that wrote under them. And so um, to say that the Great Commission is only for the apostles goes beyond the Scriptures. In fact, it denies the Scriptures because the apostles, who before being called apostles were called disciples, were told to make more disciples in Matthew 28. So we have the principle of replication in Matthew, and I, I want you to understand the idea of you are witnesses of these things is apostolic, but it's not just apostolic. You had others that were witnesses, and we are to bear witness in their train. How do I bear witness for Jesus Christ? I didn't see him rise from the dead. I say it. Jesus died for my sins and yours too, and he rose from the dead, and that's the most well-established historical fact in Western history. You got four eyewitnesses saying it, and, and one saying there were 500 living when he wrote that also could attest to it. Do you believe anything? Do you believe, uh, do you believe uh, <clears throat> Julius Caesar crossed the, the, the Rubicon River? Why do you believe that? Well, we have somebody that saw it or wrote it. Julius Caesar said so in his book. How many copies of that do you have? Like three and a half, four copies or something? Well, we've got thousands of New Testament manuscripts and copies because apparently it was important when they first uh, received it. So wh- why do you believe three or four copies when we've got thousands of copies that are of the same time period. Oh, well, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a conspiracy. Conspiracies don't hold together like that. Not like this. You've you got, you you got some explaining to do with the evidence if you actually look into it. But anyway, um, your witnesses of these things introduces the concept of witness in this gospel commission. Again, I'm not saying we're not apostolic. I'm saying it's not only for the apostles. They're the beginners of this mission that is for the apostolic church. 
In uh, verse 49, you have now the power of the gospel commission, the power of the commission. Behold, I am sitting, sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you remain in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Some observations. First of all, Jesus says, I am sending. Any theologian that ever said Jesus didn't send the Holy Spirit is in direct contradiction to Luke. Now, it's okay. He, he didn't read close enough. But this caused the schism between the Eastern and Western churches in the medieval period. Silly. Only from the Father. No, the Son too. Well, what, we're separating. One pope cast the other out as, as, a, as a heretic, and the other cast the other out as a heretic, and all of a sudden, Eastern and Western churches, which proves one salient point, that it, there is no brand for Christianity but Jesus Christ. Silliness. But Jesus sends the promise in verse 49. The promise of my Father upon you. The Father made the promise. You see it? Jesus said, I'm going to send the promise that my Father made. What's the promise? Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Can't get away from the Trinity in the New Testament. I, the Son, will send the promise of the Father that He made, and the promise will be the giving of the Holy Spirit to you. Father, Son, and Spirit. Boom. One God and three persons in one package, one, one plan, one purpose, multiple different functions. Beautiful. And how this is a consistent message from the different writers of Scripture. But you remain in the city of Jerusalem. They must be in the right place because the starting point for the mission is Jerusalem. That's what God says. This is how a mission works. The person in charge says, this is what we're doing. And then the people that are under the person in charge, the sheep under that shepherd, then say, that's what we're doing. So he says, you know what? I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit shows up for you to be able to have the power to do the work that I have for you to do, which is this proclamation of the gospel. And then all the sheep said, well, I'm going to start in Capernaum. Well, I'm going to go position myself in Syria of Antioch. Well, I'm going to go over here. Well, I want to go, back, go over to Tarsus. Maybe we'll meet a future rabbi. No. He says, go to Jerusalem. That's where it starts. That's God's design. And I think that that's a really interesting thing God did in history. The temple is in Jerusalem, the place where all the nations would look to see what it's like to see a city set on a hill from Matthew chapter 5. That's about Israel. That would be look to Israel, look to Jerusalem, look to the temple where the presence of Yahweh, the living God, is. That's where the gospel mission began. And as Jesus prophesied in, Matthew, or in John chapter 4, hey, there's coming a time when those who worship will worship in spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And in truth, that's the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. It won't be in the temple because guess what? These people are going to become the new temple of the Holy Spirit collectively and individually. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We make the temple of the Holy Spirit as the body of Christ. And so this is, uh, this is very important for God's paradigm, for his message, for his presentation of history. It was localized to one place in Zion, which ends up being the most important real estate in the world, and it is the location where Jesus will rule from according to all the Old Testament prophecies and what the book of Revelation says, and I don't know why people choose to miss that, but it's still coming. It's still future. So it's the starting point in Jerusalem. Where does Jesus come back? Re Revelation 19. Where does he come back on the white horse with the, with the rumphia, the sword proceeding from his mouth? Anybody know? The Mount of Olives. Olives. Some of you are like the mountain of grapes. No, it's the mountain of olives. And where is that piece of real estate? Mount of olives. Where is it? It's in Jerusalem. This is the most important piece of, of, uh, of terrain on planet earth. 
But isn't it the place where other religions said their stuff started? 600 years later? Yeah, when it, as God through history shows this is the piece of real estate, yes, Satan's counterfeits come and say, this is, this is ours too. We'll supersede this. They must be in the right place. In verse uh, 49, it ends, you will be clothed with power from on high. The promise of the Father involves power. The, the Greek is dunamis, where we get dynamic and dynamo. and it just means power or enablement. I once, uh, I've often heard sermons where you get this word dunamis, where we get dynamite, is the, where that works. I've often heard sermons preached where the preacher really makes the point. This is the word where we get the word dynamite. So this is the Holy Spirit's explosive power. There's so much wrong with that idea, though, because Paul, I'm sorry, Luke, not Paul, but Luke, under Paul, is not thinking about dynamite at all. He's never heard of it. That's called anachronism. That's different from an acronym. But if you say an acronym, it sounds like anachronistic. Anyway, um, the, the, the point is that um, this is not to be taken out of context to mean explosion. This is the word that you, mean, that you take to mean capability. That's way more important than you exploding someone with the gospel. Hey, I'm here to tell you about Jesus. That's just silly, right? No, I'm now enabled to say what I need to say when I just say it because I'm on mission, because I love my Savior, because I love God, because I want to serve Him, because He empowers me with His Spirit, and so I can do what I need to do. I do this, I function within my spiritual gift in this power, and I guarantee you if it's ever not in this power that the Spirit provides me to do what He wants me to do, it's not worth anything. It's not worth any, any of your attention or time. The promise of the Father involves power or enablement for the mission. And then, of course, the story in Luke ends. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven. By the way, in verse 51, do we have a record of words Jesus said that we don't know what the words were? Did he say something else? as he's ascending that we don't know what his words are but we know he said something that's exactly what luke says there are other things jesus said as he's ascending as preparing to ascend this is the ascension okay where we don't know those words i don't think matthew 28 has these words of the blessing unless it's behold lo i'm with you always even to the end of the age that is that's a blessing is the blessing the command to go and make disciples in Matthew 28? I mean, it's the same event. All those things that we have in the different Gospels were said in the same last presentation. So it may well be. But the point is that this is an example of where people want to say, well, the Gospels don't agree. Yes, there's a lot that someone said. You only said part of it. It's, it's like, um, do you ever, gentlemen, do you ever try to give this the gist of what happened and your wife says, I don't want to hear just the gist. I want to hear all the things that were said. Many words were delivered and I want to hear every word. Am I the only one that's, that, that encounters this? I gave you an executive summary that really cut through all the extra just to give you the main thing. So we'd know what to do with it. No, 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 no. I don't want to go with your interpretation of what was said. Please read me back the transcript. Well, I'm sorry, my brain doesn't work that way. And she's like, I should have been on the phone call. Right? That's, how, that's what people are doing with when, when, when Luke selects one thing. 
to say. But anyway, we're not, we're not doing comparative gospels tonight. But I just want to say that all the things that we have on the ascension, moment of the ascension of Christ, where he's establishing this mission, we're supposed to put these together and not think there's any contradiction. Different writers have different emphases, and Luke's is the power. In verse 52, they, after worshiping Jesus, they got it. Hey, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy because they're supposed to what? Wait in Jerusalem until they get power from on high. We're continually in the temple praising God. Continually in the temple praising God. Let's slip over to Acts. You've got to skip over the Gospel of John. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 1. We've been working through Acts together for a year, two years. The Christian life of Paul is a study of how the Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul, and we we read in in Acts how how Paul is walking by the Spirit in the ministry, and how the letters that we have from Paul are often, uh, you can find where Paul was or what he was doing in Acts when he wrote that letter. And so we've been working through that. We're up to uh, finishing 2 Corinthians, headed to Romans. Um, and so um, Acts 1, we've, this is well-trodden well soil here, but in verses 1 through 3, let's read it. He says, the first account I composed, that's Luke, the first account I, Luke, composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach, began to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he'd chosen. Is that what we just read in Luke 24? We just read exactly what he's describing. But what, notice he says, he by the power of the Spirit had done this. Jesus in his earthly ministry is operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's special that he gave us this power. To, those, to these people, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God? Well, let's hear it. I want to hear what he taught them about the kingdom of God. Well, Acts and Luke is not going to tell you what he taught them over those 40 days about the kingdom of God. But if you think it means to be a Christian, if you think it means that Jesus rules in your heart, if you think that there is no coming millennial kingdom in Jerusalem over the nations as described all through all the prophets, if you think that the Abrahamic covenant has been canceled because it was all just you know, big prophetic language and God doesn't mean what he said, then you have a real problem with Jesus in Acts chapter 1 because he taught them for 40 days about the kingdom and then that's what the apostles are going to ask him about. Is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? They knew to go to Jerusalem. He said, go wait in Jerusalem. They went and waited in Jerusalem. Why do we think that they didn't learn what Jesus had to teach them about the kingdom? Everything we have in Revelation points to a future fulfillment of a real coming kingdom. It's future. It's coming. It's it's something to really order your life about because there's judgment and then there's ruling in the kingdom. So in Acts 1 verses 4 and 5, gathering the disciples together, that gathering these men together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, now we just looked at Luke 24 and the, the components of the Great Commission as Luke presented it. I hope you can see some common threads. 
They don't leave Jerusalem. Remember, stay in Jerusalem. That's where the mission starts. That's where we get our charter from, this work in Jerusalem. Wait for what the Father had promised. What has the Father promised? Verse 5, it's the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but you will be immersed, identified with me through the Holy Spirit. That's what baptism means. Now, here's what people do with baptism of the Spirit. Their eyes roll over in their head, and they stop listening and concentrating. It's like the opposite of what the Holy Spirit would do with this passage. He wants you to understand it. He's going to open your heart to it. But the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 5, the baptism work of the Holy Spirit, is not some sort of compelling emotional experience. It's way more important than that. It is an eternal identification and union with Jesus Christ in his past, present, and future. It is literally to be united to Jesus so that Paul, under whom Luke writes, always says those who are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. How do you get to be in Christ? The baptism of the Holy Spirit makes the church. It makes us what we are. That happens the moment, ever since Acts 10 or 14, there was a transitional period in this thing from Pentecost until the Gentile mission. But ever since the middle of Acts, when you believe in Christ, when someone comes to Christ, they are baptized instantly into Christ by the Holy Spirit. There's no water in this. There's no oil. There's no liquids. It's a dry baptism. But it is the real union with Jesus Christ that makes us his body. It makes us his church, his church. On this rock, I will in the future, he says in Matthew 16, build my church. For John baptized with water, verse 5, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So I want you to see Luke's focus on the Great Commission stuff is about the, the power and the promise, the power and the promise, the power and the promise. Luke, as writing this introduction to what's going on in the mission for the church, is going to really emphasize the giving of the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. In verses 6 and 7, you have a question and an answer about Revelation. I don't just mean the book of Revelation. I mean Revelation when God tells us something, He uncovers something we wouldn't know. That's what we mean by the word Revelation. And indeed, the, the apocalypse or Revelation of John is that. So the question and answer, what's the question? In verse 6, so when they come together, they're asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, we've read it in context. In verse 3, he taught them concerning the kingdom. And so their follow-on question is, is this when it's coming? It's a time question. And guess what? Their timing is off. (laughs) It's not the right question. It's not the right time for them to worry about this. They want to know about this revelation of when it's going to happen. Reveal it to us. And he's going to say, no. He doesn't say wrong question and say, my kingdom's not of this earth. People misunderstand what my kingdom is not of this world means. It means that it has nothing to do with you, Pontius Pilate, or with Satan's systems that are governing planet earth. My kingdom is not of this cosmos, but it is going to be an earthly political, if you will, kingdom ruling over the nations. And you have a stake in it as you rule with Christ. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. I think that answer really helps with people that don't understand biblical prophecy and want to just gloss it over. There are a couple of ways that happens. It's not the topic tonight. But I would just challenge you, let when, when Isaiah says something's going to happen, the first thing to do is believe it. 
Not to say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah that, it can't really happen that way because that would violate natural law or something. I believe lions will eat straw like oxen because Isaiah says so. And you know why I think that? Because I think Isaiah is empowered by the Spirit to say stuff that we wouldn't otherwise know. In other words, the fight, the wild kingdom is over. The kingdom of Christ is peace. He is the Prince of Peace, and he brings it by crushing Satan under your feet in Romans 16, 20. All right, verse 8 is our Great Commission verse. It is also the outline of the book of Acts and is the focus of Luke's commission statement. He says, and I've translated from the Greek here, but you will in the future receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's very clearly, explicitly future tense from when Jesus is speaking, meaning the Pentecost, Acts 2, it's coming next chapter. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And here's the thing I want to focus on with you. You will receive and you will be. You will receive power and that will make you my witnesses. You will receive this enablement and that will enable you to be what you're supposed to be. You have a job to do and you're going to have enablement to do it. This is so important for us to grasp in terms of the Great Commission because the defining feature of our age is that we have the third person of the Trinity resident in us for a purpose. He's in us because we have a mission to accomplish. Point out some of these things that we've seen. Power, the Holy Spirit, my witnesses, and we could also highlight Jerusalem. The same ideas that we saw in Luke 24, they keep coming back because this is Luke's presentation. This is his focus. And also, I would challenge you, read Acts. Acts follows this outline. It starts in Jerusalem, goes out to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Paul ends up over in Europe and eventually in Rome. The remotest part of the earth is the, is the, that's not saying Rome is the end of the world. It's saying that once you get it to Rome, it's, it's metastasized to the world because Rome uh, has the inter- information superhighway of the day called the Roman road system, and it's going to go viral, as we would say today. So this is uh, the focus of Luke's commission statement um, as we have looked at it in some detail in the past. You have to have something if you're going to be something. You have to have some enablement if you're going to do what God wants you to do. You want to move three yards of dirt in 10 minutes? You're going to have to have a, a shovel and a wheelbarrow, okay? You're also going to have to have a cardiovascular system that will support it and some other factors that, that you, need, you need in order to do the job. Okay, so let's get four things on the power of the Great Commission. Four ideas on the power of the Great Commission. First of all, Acts 2 describes the advent of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers for service. With me so far? In Acts 2, you have the day of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell believers for service. Second, this is the beginning of the church. Church didn't start with a hierarchical structure. It started with Christ baptizing believers into himself through the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is composed of all who are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. That's what we understand to be the definition of the church. Believers in this age, by God's grace, who've been baptized in the Spirit into Christ. And what this also means is that the Holy Spirit's baptism is not some sort of second blessing that you're a believer, but you don't get it till you really, really want it. That's not how it works. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is your initiation right into the body of Christ. Third, this focus is our attention on biblical pneumatology. I like that word. Biblical pneumatology or the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What do you know about biblical pneumatology? What does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? Ready for a second hour? What does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit? Some topics 
in biblical pneumatology. You re- now watch, we're going to go through this quick, and we'll pick it up on, on, on here next week. But, um, but I just want, I want to introduce some of these ideas. The divine personhood of the Holy Spirit. I just said a lot. The idea that the Holy Spirit is not just an influence or an it. It's a personal, third person of the Trinity, personal being. The Holy Spirit is a person. How do we know that? All the passages in the scriptures about the Holy Spirit. He does what persons do. He teaches. For example, just for one example, he makes, he builds, he empowers. Okay? He's divine, meaning he's God. The divinity of the Holy Spirit, that's a whole thing. And we assume it. I understand you all assume it, but this is biblical pneumatology. The Holy Spirit in creation, Genesis 1 2, the Spirit of Yahweh is hovering over the face of the deep. What is that? The Spirit of Elohim. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The endowment. Oh, I love this word. Theological term, endowment by the Spirit. Do you all remember going through Isaiah and looking at the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? That was some fun stuff. What does the Holy Spirit do in the Old Testament? He breaks forth upon Saul. He, he's taken away from Saul and given to David. He's on Samson. He's on, he's on all these different figures. He, he empowers Bezalel to build the Ark of the Covenant. He, um, he, he works on Moses so that Moses is able to do his work. In Numbers 14, the Holy Spirit is given to the 70 elders of Israel, and they prophesy, but they don't do it again. You watch the Old Testament on the Holy Spirit. He's all over. He's all over the Old Testament. But it's only to a few, and they're specific. They're kind of the focal people, and they have a specific task. And we call it endowment. Do you know why? you know why we call this endowment? Because it comes from the Greek word enduo, which means to clothe. Because some of the time, it says the Holy Spirit, salak, he broke forth. But some of the time, it says lavash, he clothed them. They were clothed with the Spirit. And it's a way of visually describing something you could never see. So they're clothed, and that's where the word endowment comes from. I don't expect you to remember that. But this is a great Old Testament theological point that the Holy Spirit showed up all through Israel. Samson was not powerful because of his braids. He was powerful because the Spirit of God worked in him, and he had a mission. What was his mission? What was Samson's job? To deliver Israel from the oppressor. That's what the judges did. The Holy Spirit was, was on mission. What could Saul do? King Saul, he has special power from the Spirit too. As a judge would, as the first king, you know what he could do? He could recruit the army. He could muster the tribes of Israel to go take the field as an army. That, that seems to be one of his great uh, abilities that he had and, and so forth. Um, did you know you could lose the, the Holy Spirit? In the Old Testament, if you received the Spirit, you could lose the, the power of the Spirit. And that's what uh, happens to Saul. God takes his spirit from Saul and puts an evil spirit to torment him. And then he puts his spirit on David. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm absolutely convinced that's God, the Holy Spirit. It's not some some other spirit. David prays in Psalm 51 when he asks God to clean him up and deliver him from his sin. He says, take not your Holy Spirit from me like you did Saul. Even though I murdered Bathsheba's husband and bereft that family of a son and an uncle, and, and, and destroyed my, my kingdom by this murder, don't take your spirit from me. That's what Psalm 51 is saying. And it's because they have an, a ministry in those days we don't, that we don't have. We're not endued by the spirit. We're indwelled by the spirit. And um, the Galatians have been severed from Christ in chapter 5, but in Galatians 3, they have the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit, yet somehow they're severed from Christ because they're out of fellowship, because they're walking in darkness. Galatians. Anyway, a lot of of content tonight, I know. 
The inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the prophets is 2 Peter 1, 20, 21. How do you have any Old Testament scripture? The Holy Spirit carried those prophets along and they, they received the messages they received and it's God the third person doing the in, inspiring. That's why spirit, breath, wind, inspiration. See, that's a Holy Spirit function. The promise of the Holy Spirit, Luke 24, 49, and other places where God said he would give us his spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit in defining the church, as we said, the indwelling of the Spirit in every church saint. I don't think the indwelling ministry is the same as the baptism. Baptism is identification, and it's an abiding fact, but your indwelling by the Spirit is His constant presence in you, and it says He's come in our hearts to abide forever. In fact, I don't think for all eternity you will lose this indwelling presence in your person of God, the third person. It's a phenomenal thought when you consider that God lives in you to make you the temple of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, and other places, the spiritual gifts are called manifestations of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit, especially our focus in Ephesians 5. There are lots of statements about filling, but the one that uses this specific word for filling, plerao, is Ephesians chapter 5, and we have a lot more to say about that. Let's close down, though, with, uh, with uh, five thoughts on what Luke's commissioning passages teach us about the Holy Spirit. Let's close down with that, okay? Five thoughts. I, I did a little introduction on Halloween tonight, so we'll, we'll finish this message up, okay? Five thoughts on what the commissioning passages teach us about the Holy Spirit. You know, I was taught in school, don't teach all the way through your material. Teach your people. And if you don't get through it, that's okay. If you don't get through it, that's okay. Let's get through it. And let's get it through us. Can you, can you stick with me for just a few more minutes? There might be candy at the end. Okay, here we go. <laughs> the reason we have the gift of the Spirit is because we have a mission. Is that evident? That's what's going on in the Great Commission with the Holy Spirit. You, see, I knew all about the Holy Spirit coming up, but I didn't understand necessarily how that connected to the mission. Second, the operational power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, his sojourn, is now in us to empower our fulfillment of his mission. That's why he's the author and perfecter of the faith. He pioneered the spiritual life we're living. That's why he could tell the disciples, greater works than these you will do because they'll have the Holy Spirit and they'll do it all over the world. They'll bring many sons into glory by their proclamation of this message. It doesn't mean you're going to... Um, you're going to have miraculous power necessarily. It means that something more important is going to happen. You're going to say what is necessary for someone to miraculously have eternal life with God. So that's, the, that's really the issue in the gospel. All the miracles in the gospels don't take anything away from them. They're demonstrating who is speaking and what he's doing. But all, Lazarus died. Lazarus was raised from the dead. He went back to the grave. He still stinketh. Right? Lazarus is done. Except that he has eternal life and he will be resurrected on the last day. That's the real miracle. I mean, that's the ultimate miracle. And that's in your, in your responsibility with this message of the gospel. Third, since we're on Jesus' mission, that means if we're not on mission, we're wasting the greatest privilege you could ever imagine. Is that, is that fair? A Christian empowered by the Holy Spirit for the mission who doesn't do the mission. Can I borrow something since we're doing on mission? Talk about uh, the Normandy landings and how we're advancing under fire. Adam, your poster on mission, you know, is the, the Normandy boat. Can I, can I recall your attention back to 1995 and a little movie they made about the Norman invasion called 
Saving Private Ryan. I think it was 95, somewhere back in there, 96. It was the best World War II movie they made in the 90s anyway. Maybe in color. Maybe it's the best one in color. I don't know. But as far as capturing what went on at the beaches in Normandy, it's really awful and realistic and so horrific. That's some real Halloween stuff right there. Machine guns chewing your friends up into hamburger. It's awful. But, but. There's this one scene in there that always captures my attention when I think about wasted resources. It's the little typewriter guy that somehow gets sucked up into the ranger squad. Big mistake. His name is Oppum. He's a sweet kid, and he just doesn't want to kill anyone. There's this one scene where a Jewish soldier who's on this mission to go save Private Ryan, he is being, he's in a knife fight with a Nazi that's got at least 30 pounds, 40 pounds on him. This big old strong, perfectly looking Aryan Nazi actor fighting this scrawny New Jersey Jewish American. Uh, and it's like a picture of the Jews being accosted by the Nazis. It's, it's definitely a, a visual metaphor for this. And poor little op on the typewriter guy, his job is to carry the ammunition. And he's got about, I don't know, 60 or 100 pounds of machine gun and rifle ammunition all strung all over his little scrawny body. And he's scared and he's stuck on the steps and right by the room where he could go help this guy and save his life as the German knife is slowly pushed into his gut. Just, just as this, this Nazi kills this Jewish man, this American kid is on the steps with all the resources and he doesn't go save him because he's paralyzed in fear. I think what they're doing, the filmmakers are doing, is saying we got into this War, war II thing a little bit late as America. I think that's what they're saying by it. But Oppum on the stairs is the most tragic scene I've ever, I, I think I've ever seen because you just want this, this Jewish kid to, to beat this Nazi that's beaten. He's almost got him, but he doesn't quite have enough to get him. And just as he's about to get stabbed, you're like, Oppum, you can save him, and he doesn't. It's the most horrible waste of resources you can ever imagine if you want to save this man's life. And that, that grabs me emotionally, but this is way worse. The believer in Jesus Christ who thinks he's here to be an American living the dream and doesn't understand that the freedom of America is for us to proclaim Christ so that many can come to know, know him and have eternal life, at least have the opportunity to consider Christ because of a solid testimony from people in freedom who use that freedom for that purpose. If we're not on mission, we're wasting the greatest privilege imaginable. Let me make it more dramatic. Point four is the same thing said again. The Christian who doesn't serve in the mission is guilty of the greatest waste of resources in human history. Can I, can I say that? Yes, we're almost there. Someone grab that baby. We're almost done, buddy. All right, you're going to take this next point, Benjamin, and then we'll be done. Here we go. The mission work which he empowers anticlimactically is communication. I'm not talking about if you really believe, then you're really going to raise the dead or heal the sick. I don't think that's going on now. Something much more important is happening. The communication work that we're, the, the, the gospel work that we're called to do, the power of the Spirit is in our communication. How you live and what you say. How you consider the other person. Get up in the morning and say, God, help me be on your mission today. This will get stale. You will forget this. Right now we're all charged up with Oppum on the stairs. Don't want to be that guy. This will get old. You'll be like, oh yeah, on mission. Oh yeah, that thing. It's not a slogan. It's a suggestion to grab our attention for our memory. 
The reason you have a spiritual life, the reason you have the Holy Spirit, the reason you have a spiritual gift is because we have a mission that he wants us to accomplish. Let's pray for it. Father, thank you for the mission, for the privilege we have of your spirit working in us. Thank you that we can avoid the distractions of this world and focus on the task at hand to be about your business. And Father, uh, give us the joy and satisfaction of seeing a job well done, of seeing your spirit work in us, and many come to know Jesus Christ. You're the Lord of the harvest. We beg you, Father, send workers into that harvest and provide us opportunities uh, with, with our nets to bring some fish to shore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.